0: And thank you, all opening team. That was great. Isn't it great just to worship the Lord? What a privilege we have been given. Now you have to listen to me. John's Gospel, chapter 8, and beginning at verse 12. One of the issues I have, and I'm sure I'm not alone here with Bible reading, is that we tend to read a paragraph or two and then neglect the context. Now, the passage that Jim worked on last week kind of lends itself to that because it almost stands alone. Um... But we tend not to stop and inquire, well, why was Jesus in the temple at all? Why was he in Jerusalem? Most of the gospel accounts, if you, if you take all four gospels together, most of the gospel accounts put most of Jesus' ministry in the north, in Galilee. Why was he in Jerusalem? And the, Now, the context, of course, is fairly is easy if you go back a chapter or so. And you remember in uh, chapter 7, in the first few verses, Jesus' brothers were challenging him to go public, to openly declare himself to the world at the Feast of Booths. Now, Jesus did go to Jerusalem later and then late in the festivities, he chose to teach in the temple. Uh, but to understand our passage this morning, we need to uh, clearly remember the feast that has just been celebrated. This event would have taken place on the eighth day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles Boots. Now, this feast was designed by God to call to remembrance how God had worked in the midst of the people during their wilderness trek back um, about 1,500 years before. Um, The daily procession of carrying the water from the Pool of Siloam to the temple was intended to call to mind the way that at Meribah, God had provided water from the rock for his people. And the nightly lighting of the huge candelabra was to remind them of the pillar of fire that guided them through their nighttime journeying and that had also protected them from the pursuing Egyptians. So late in the festivities, Jesus had declared um, in chapter 7 and verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's basically restating the offer that he had made to the Samaritan woman, the gift of living water. And then reading on a bit, uh, chapter 8 and verse 2, Says, early in the morning he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus is in the temple early in the morning and he's teaching. And then he was interrupted by the scribes and Pharisees who brought this poor woman who had been caught in adultery just, and they, they brought her to him just in an attempt to discredit him. And then, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. But even if I do judge... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It's almost like Jesus just picked up the thread of what he had been teaching before, the interruption. And here we have the second of the so called I am statements of Jesus. In the Gospel of John each of these statements uh, describe Jesus and his ministry briefly in ways that are relatively easy to remember so for example we have in John 6 uh, Jesus says I am the bread of life in John 8 I am the light of the world John 10 I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. Each of these statements reveals something of the character and the ministry of Jesus.
1: For example, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he's saying that
0: apart from him, Apart from an intimate relationship with him, we cannot really live. We need him. When he said, I am the door, he meant that we can't enter into the life that he came to provide for us unless we go through him. And we'll address each of these statements as we come to them during our explorations of John's Gospel. But for today, the statement that's before us is, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. The interruption that Jesus suffered a few minutes before serves as an illustration of what he meant. The judgment of the scribes and the Pharisees had been darkened, and they could not, or would not, Understand who or what Jesus is, nor could they understand or appreciate the miraculous signs that had already been given them. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, he's confronting the religious leaders with their own inability or unwillingness to render justice and mercy. The incident with the women with the woman merely showed how darkened their sense of justice and mercy had become. Now there are quite a number of things we should note uh, in this statement by Jesus, but among them and this is key Jesus is laying claim to be Israel's Messiah. Isaiah had laid out the ministry of the Messiah some 600 years before. And if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 9, we, we know this passage. We read it every Christmas. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. And if you, by the way, if you happen to be using the uh, Brown Pew Bible, page 1072. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All that area, that's the northern part, the northern kingdom is what he's referring to here that fell to Assyria before Jerusalem did. Back, you know, six or seven hundred years previous. Um, the people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Then if you can turn over to Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Isaiah 42 and verse one, and I, I this this is a relatively long passage. Just wanted to get it into something of a context. Um, Behold, my servant, whom I'm whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him; he will bring forth justice to the nation. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law.
1: Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit
0: to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And over just a few pages, Isaiah 49, the same kind of thought is reiterated. Isaiah 49 in verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. I, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. That's just too, too little. I will make you as a light for the nation that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Clearly, Isaiah saw the Messiah and described him as the light. And when you look through the Old Testament, you just take a, you know, do a search or pick up your concordance or whatever, and you look at the word light, you discover that It's one of the favored descriptions of the Lord God. For example, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Or Or Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. Now, light is also a favorite description of the Old Testament scriptures, especially of the law, the the, uh, first five books or so. So in saying that when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was saying not only is he Israel's Messiah, he is the Lord God, and he is equal to or superior to me. The Old Testament Scriptures. No small wonder the religious authorities were upset because to them this was rank heresy. But in speaking of God as the light, the Scriptures consistently present that light as the light of reason and moral responsibility. And I think this is what, why Jesus said this at this point, having just dealt with this woman. John commented in chapter 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't merely say, I am the light of the world. That's important, but there's a lot more. Jesus said... I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Think about that. Whoever. It's wide open. In Isaiah's prophecy, God had promised that the Messiah would be for all nations. That's... Not just the Jews; it's also for Gentiles, for us. The Pharisees at that time generally held that you had to become a Gentile would have to become a Jew to enjoy the benefits of a covenant relationship with the living God. But Jesus simplified the whole thing. All that is required of us is that we follow. Jesus. So Jesus said, whoever follows me, the point is that it's not enough to know about Jesus. Not enough to give intellectual assent to the facts about him, about his death and resurrection. There has to be an active participation in his life. Similar to the way the first disciples of Jesus followed him, deliberately and intentionally learning his ways, and then doing and speaking as he did. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Being in fellowship with Jesus requires an attitude of repentance on our part. We simply don't have it altogether. We don't have all the answers. We don't even uh, do what we should, not even what we know to do. But as we learn of Jesus, as we live in fellowship with Jesus and his people, We begin to spend a little more time in, a little more of our life in conformity to His holiness, and begin to spend a smaller and smaller fraction of our time in the darkness of sin. But Jesus is not a light, like a flashlight, that we can use for our own purposes to find our own way. You ever taken a walk through the bush at night? when there's only one flashlight for a group of you? You go off the path your own way, guess what? Won't be long before you're lost. Um, So we can't use Jesus for our own purposes. He's the light that we need to follow. He's lighting our path so that we are not in darkness so that we can go His way. If you try to go your own way, you'll not be following him and you'll end up in darkness. Now, this is a momentous claim on the part of Jesus. But it's curious that the only accusation against Jesus at this point, other accusations will come, but at this point, the only accusation against Jesus is that he is testifying on his own behalf. He said, you know, the, the, the Pharisees say, hey, wait a minute. You're making a claim. You can't substantiate it. There's only one witness here. And it's you. Not good. But that doesn't mean that they would accept what Jesus said if he could come up with additional witnesses or other evidence to support his claim. But their argument was that since he was testifying about himself, his testimony simply could not be accepted. In other words, to all intents and purposes, Jesus was lying. But Jesus countered the argument. Uh, Back to John chapter 8. So thankful for sticky taps. Back to John chapter 8. Um, he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true because. Now, watch the because. I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. And the Father has also testified to Jesus' identity. Now the main qualification for a witness in any court is that the person has to have first-hand knowledge of the events or the persons in question. But who has seen the Father? Who knows his heart and his mind. The only one who can testify to that would be the Son of God. Now, you know, so there it is. At this point, Jesus doesn't bring up the other evidence that points to his identity, namely his works. But later on, he he said to his disciples, he says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. There's the confirmation evidence. Then the Pharisees question him further about, and and I think this is a pretty sarcastic statement. Now, there, in John's Gospel, there is no birth narrative. Okay, John assumes. That his readers already know Luke's gospel, where it, Luke carefully laid out the virgin conception of Jesus. But what was publicly known was that somehow Jesus was conceived before she was married. Yeah, Jesus was conceived before Mary was married. So, the statement, I think, comes out something like this. Oh yeah! And where is your father? Okay. Joseph was known to to have been dead for several years by this point. So, Jesus doesn't have an earthly father he can call on. So, this was a slap in Jesus' face, because it implied that because Jesus had been conceived out of wedlock, therefore he had no social standing, he had no basis upon which he should be heard. This kind of innuendo will come out again later um, in, the, in the same chapter, and Wade, you'll have to deal with it yourself. Uh, But, you know, it's there. It's there. It's the assumption that because Jesus was conceived before Mary and Joseph were married, he's illegitimate. Never mind. Throw him away. In response, Jesus makes an interesting claim. He said, You know neither me nor my father." If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In other words, if you spent the time to get to know me, if you would put aside your bias and your prejudice against me for a bit, you might come to realize who I am, and therefore you would come to know the Father as well. And continuing the discussion, Jesus makes an interesting and I find a frightening statement. Verse 21. Let's just read the the rest of our passage. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. I see in this, and and I don't know why no one else does, but there it is. I see in this an echo of the vision that Ezekiel saw just before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. In that vision, it's recorded in Ezekiel 10 and 11, if you want to read it later, the prophet saw the glory of the God of Israel leaving the temple and leaving the land of Judah. And shortly following that vision, The news came of the fall and the total destruction of the city. God wasn't finished with Judah at that point because right after that vision, the record of that vision, there's the promise of restoration. But he removed his protective covering presence from the city. So that the Babylonians could come in and do their task. And now Jesus is saying to the religious leaders that he who clearly claimed to be God himself, he was leading. And they would search for him unsuccessfully and ultimately die in their sin. He didn't, Jesus didn't say when he was leaving but about 40 years later Jerusalem no longer stood the Romans had come in and totally destroyed the city again the response of the Pharisees is again sarcastic because they proposed that the only way that Jesus could go somewhere that they couldn't follow was if he killed himself if he committed suicide. And uh, that as a result, according to their twisted theology, he would end up in the lowest parts of hell, where, of course, they would never even attempt to go. In their minds, they were going to heaven. And I'm sure that some were muttering at the thought of Jesus committing suicide, good riddance. But Jesus is deadly serious. He's working from the perspective of the upper story, God's perspective, while his critics can only see the lower story. So he explained again, slowly and patiently, he says, verse 23, he said, "Uh, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am you will die in your sin. Don't you notice how I read that? There's an issue in the English translation and I don't care what English translation you're using there's an issue here that simply to me clouds the meaning. Whatever English translation you have in front of you, you will find a word or a few words following the phrase, unless you believe that I am. The English Standard Version that I'm working working from says, unless you believe that I am he. I think New International says, unless you believe that I am who I say I am. Okay. those words don't exist in the Greek manuscript Jesus said unless you believe that I am in other words the the, the English translators have, have tried they've tried to make the English readable the problem is that the Greek isn't the Greek is awkward and that's deliberate. Jesus is saying as clearly as he can that he is the great I am of Ezekiel 3, of, of Exodus 3. Unless we believe that, we will die in our sin. That's why his earlier statement about his going away is so frightening. God was going to leave Jerusalem again. And the city would be destroyed again. This time by the Romans in 70 AD. But unless we recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as God himself, there is no salvation. Sorry folks, there is no other way. There is no salvation at all, ever. The leaders continue not to understand what Jesus is saying. Now, to be fair, it must have been hard to set aside the traditional interpretations of Scripture and to realize that this uncultured Galilean is in fact the Messiah for whom they had been waiting for centuries. The final statement of Jesus in this portion was also difficult to grasp, unless at least until several months had passed. Jesus said, verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Again, Jesus says that he is God himself. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am Of course, to the eye of faith, this lifting up of Jesus refers to his crucifixion. The religious leaders he's talking about, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. So this this refers to his crucifixion, which would be followed by his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension we've discussed several times that it's one thing to predict your own death. Perhaps even the means by which you will die. I mean, uh, those things are, like, like with a twisted kind of mind, you can orchestrate that. But it's quite another to predict your resurrection. Given the finality of death. But because Jesus is in fact risen, and we have good and sufficient reason to believe it we can be confident that he is just who he claimed to be the great I am the one and only true God. Jesus has been confronting the entrenched and determined darkness of the religious leadership But even in that widespread darkness, there's a glimmer of hope. Verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. True, as you read on through the, through the chapter, they were these, some of those who had, who believed had some other issues and were not as convinced as we would have hoped they would have been. But that some believed is a very good sign. Our time is gone. So if we walk through this passage today, Jesus has laid before us a promise and a severe warning. The promise is that if we follow Him, we'll not be walking in darkness, but in light. Now, it... It takes, for most of us, it took some event, some situation, for us to set aside the tendency that's inbred in us to want to do things our own way and to recognize our own sinfulness. It's not easy. It's not easy for any of us to acknowledge that without outside help, We simply cannot make it. We need a Savior. But as the prophet Amos asked, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Well, is it possible? Can you take a walk with anyone without having agreed to meet somewhere? Sometimes, Jesus is awaiting your decision, your choice. To meet with him and to begin to walk with him. But remember, he's not about to change his requirements. He's not going to change his direction. We walk with him only on his terms. And that requires that we choose His way, His path. Any side trips into sinful thoughts and behaviors only end up in darkness. They'll jeopardize our relationship with Him. That's the promise. That's the hope. But the warning is this, and it it leaves us with no wiggle room, no middle ground. Unless we are prepared to acknowledge that Jesus is God, sorry, folks, there is no salvation. His death on the cross is of no value unless he is God the Son, who chose to take my sin, your sin, on himself. Now, it's true that there are those who, in their ignorance, do not believe that Jesus ever claimed divinity but he could not have been more direct his first hearers certainly understood what Jesus was saying they just rejected it so the question is do we understand and receive what Jesus was saying do you Do you recognize Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, as God the Son, as the only sufficient Savior, as the Christ, as your Lord? Because without that confession, without that confession, you'll die in your sin. There are quite a number of people here who would love to talk with you. Love to explore this further with you. But let's pray for now. Father, we do thank you. Thank you that you have made a way. And that that way is accessible to us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for sending your beloved Son. That he should take our sin upon himself. That he should die in our place. That he should be raised from the dead. And that even now he is interceding for us with your right hand. Thank you, Father. Lord, we ask that you would help us to make that choice, to choose to walk, to choose to follow Jesus more faithfully than above all things, Lord the glory and the honor and the praise might go to him and we thank you for it all in his precious name. Amen. Now I know there was a, a song prepared but I think we're sufficiently over time we'll have to pass. Thank you.